Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We know that the optimal treatment plan for patients with lung cancer requires input from many different experts. One very important member of this team is our friendly neighborhood pulmonologist. Today, we will talk to two highly trained interventional pulmonologists to learn about that field, the evolving role of the interventional pulmonologist, and diagnosis, treatment, follow-up, and survivorship of patients with lung cancer. We are joined by Dr. Danielle Sterman, the Thomas and Suzanne Murphy Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, New York University Grossman School of Medicine. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. We are also joined by Dr. Rebecca Krokmal, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonology, Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Right before we started the recording, I was sharing with Dan and Rebecca that I have my friendly pulmonologist and a speed dial. And I often talk more with my pulmonologist that I would say I would talk to the pathologist. So it feels sometimes just like another member of the family. So you both train in interventional pulmonology, which is relatively a new field. Rebecca, can you explain what an interventional pulmonology does and what training is required? Sure. So interventional pulmonology is sometimes referred to as IP in short. And basically, it's a combination of elements of pulmonology, some otolaryngology, and some thoracic surgery. But what it focuses on is the advanced diagnosis and treatment of airway pathology, lung pathology, as well as the pleural space. So for example, we would be focusing on lung cancer diagnosis, staging, if there's airway disease for treatment and pleural effusion management as well. Some of the hallmarks of interventional pulmonology has actually been the use of rigid bronchoscopy as well for malignant and, and benign airway disease. The training required is usually one year after completion of a pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship. So it's an additional fellowship year. And it's a mentor program with about one to three fellows per program per year. Alan, just to follow on that question, Rebecca, do the interventional pulmonology goes to the match? Yes. So it, it is part of the match process and interview and match process for the advanced year of training. Then I hear more and more interventional pulmonology training programs. You know, which ones were some of the first programs and do people can do training beyond that year in the same area? Certainly. Thank you, Nurgis, for those for that question. I will say that I am I'm a graybeard compared to Rebecca. So when I entered the field, there really wasn't a dedicated field of interventional pulmonology. There was a set of skills that I wanted to learn. And as I entered, the way for me to get trained was actually to spend a total of a year 
on the thoracic surgery service while I was a pulmonary critical care fellow during the course of my fellowship to acquire the skills because there were no interventional pulmonary fellowship programs. So when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, we started the third in the United States interventional pulmonary program. And this was before we had a match. So we took internal candidates, we took outside candidates by word of mouth and internal interviewing, but we didn't, we preceded the development of the formal match process. And before there was a formal curriculum and before there was a board examination, which we also have now as well. So now we have a match process. We have over 40 to 45 programs across the course of the country. We have a board examination, which is not yet ACGME certified, but we hope, as Rebecca said, that it will be shortly. And we have programs that are both one and two years in duration. Some of the two-year programs incorporate a year or more of research. And I think that's very important as this field is going to grow as an academic discipline going forward. Thank you, Dan, for sharing that with us. You know, we often forget that a lot of things were new a few years ago. And I think it may be due to the pandemic that everything feels now that was like 10 years ago, right? <laughs> if it was only like three or four years ago. I think, you know, historically, bronchoscopies has been one of the standard approaches for lung cancer diagnosis. But EVAS is a little bit more recent. I remember being a resident and hearing the word EVAS, and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Rebecca, can you describe the difference between an EVAS and a bronchoscopy? Sure. So you can kind of think of as uh, bronchoscopy as this overarching term. It's basically camera visualization of the airways, the mediastinum. And endobronchial ultrasound is kind of a subset of that. EBUS is endobronchial ultrasound. So traditionally, if we were looking at the mediastinal lymph nodes, we would be using transbronchial needle aspiration, which is needle diagnosis, biopsy of those lymph nodes. And we would be approximating where they were using radiographic evaluation to approximate where they are. EBUS, or endobronchial ultrasound, allows us to see in real time where those lymph nodes are. You can localize them, you can look at the characteristics of them, the size, and you can also under real-time visualization biopsy them. So you can make sure that you're in the correct lymph node, you're getting, you're avoiding any surrounding structures, and you're really getting good sample from it. So EBUS is really a subset of bronchoscopy, if you would. If I might add, not just to what Rebecca's comments are, I think endobronchial ultrasound is one of the great revolutionary developments not only in pulmonary medicine, in interventional pulmonology, but in all of the field of lung cancer and thoracic oncology in the last 20 years. I would say, from my perspective, there are four endobronchial ultrasound, lung cancer screening, targeted therapy, and development of immunotherapy. But endobronchial ultrasound is, to me, revolutionary because of the ability to do minimally invasive staging of mediastinal and hyalur nodes in a very short period of time, safely on an outpatient basis, essentially eliminating the need for mediastinoscopy, which is essentially a procedure that is almost no longer done, is almost apocryphal in medical care right now. So the ability to stage the mediastinum, to do it at the same time as a diagnostic procedure, and ultimately we hope that interventional pulmonologists would be doing it concomitantly with treatment of peripheral lesions at the same time, really is a revolutionary concept. Thank you, Dan, for sharing that with us. And I have to say that during the early... 12 months in the pandemic, it was nearly impossible getting the OR for a mediastinoscopy. And EVAS was what actually saved the day many times for some of my patients that we needed, you know, appropriate staging. So I think it came right in the right moment for us. Associated with EVAS, then what is their learning curve? You know, as a medical oncologist, 
all procedures kind of sound complicated to me now. I kind of forget the internal medicine part. How is the learning curve and how much experience is necessary to do at EVAS? Well, I think Rebecca's closer to it right now as a division director. EVAS is for me over in the past, but I'll tell you my own experience, which is interesting. There was no endobronchial ultrasound, no EVAS when I was training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. And neither when I was doing my interventional pulmonary training on thoracic surgery, and nor my early years as a faculty member in interventional pulmonology. And so I actually had to learn from my fellows who I sent to Japan to learn the technique and bring it back to me at Penn and to my colleagues at Penn. And so the learning curve was almost reversed with the trainees teaching the the mentor. And it was a very interesting process to learn. But like any procedural technique, and I'm interested in Rebecca's thoughts, the learning curve, it differs for each individual. You can't say it's it takes 20 procedures, 30 or 50 or 100. It really depends upon the skill set of the individual who's performing the procedure. And that learning curve can change over time. And we're, we've created metrics as a field of interventional pulmonology, including an assessment called the EPA-STAT, which is an assessment technology that can assess whether an individual operator is adequately skilled in performing the procedure. And this involves both didactic, virtual, and as well as hands-on evaluation. And we continue to see advancements in the field. And now we have robotic bronchoscopy. Rebecca, can you explain to me what is robotic bronchoscopy and when do you use that versus EVAS? Sure. So robotic bronchoscopy is actually newer technology, as you uh, mentioned, and it's primarily for diagnosing peripheral lung nodules, lung lesions, masses, things like that. It's a modality to help us get to the periphery of the lung. Whereas EBIS, with the traditional EBIS that you think of with mediastinal lymph nodes, is really looking at the, the center of the chest at the mediastinum. So we certainly do combine the two. We do robotic bronchoscopy to diagnose the lung nodule in the periphery. And then we do EBIS, the traditional EBIS, to stage the mediastinum. In the biopsy of the peripheral lung nodules, the robotic bronchoscopy, though, does combine EBIS with it in a, a little bit of a different form. It can be a a smaller tool to look at the lung nodule itself via radial EBIS is the way that we help to look at lung nodules in the periphery. So it really combines all the the modalities together. Do you require a special type of training to do the robotic bronchoscopy? Right. So it all depends. In my IP fellowship, um, in my pulmonary fellowship, I was trained on navigation bronchoscopy which is quite similar to robotics, but you know, different technology platforms, companies, things like that. And so while I use the robot now, it was a quite easy transition. I knew some of the ideas and the use of the adjunct tools that we use with navigational bronchoscopy. So you just had to learn the robotic platform, which we did formal training through the companies that manufacture them. So it is a new tool, but it similar to something we've been using in the past. Well, thank you. Like As I talk to you, it looks like the two of you have very cool tools. I still have Pembro though. So <laughs> <laughs> I find that for early stage, you know, small cell lung cancer, invasive mediastinal staging is often inappropriately skipped. So now my patients, I see it as a second opinion. They don't have it. So then what has been your experience about this? Does every patient at NYU gets mediastinal staging Oh, when is it appropriate to skip this in some patients? So it's a great question. I think we're still answering that question in some circumstances now, Juice. I would say that 
the vast majority of our patients who are going to go to surgery were, are going to have some form of mediastinal staging preoperatively. And whether that is imaging only or whether that's imaging plus endobronchial ultrasound guided staging remains yet to be seen. And I say that because we're still learning about the yield of, for example, the negative mediastine on contrast-enhanced CT and PET-CT in terms of what the yield of endobronchial ultrasound is. To some degree, it depends upon the size of the lesion in the lung parenchyma. And if you do an FDG PET scan, what the SUV, the standardized uptake value in the primary lesion is. So we know that, for example, with high levels of FDG avidity in the primary lesion, that even with a negative mediastinum on CT scan, that the yield is fairly reasonable from endobronchial ultrasound guided staging of mediastinal and hyalur nodes. And so we will proceed even with the absence of demonstrable adenopathy on imaging to do an endobronchial ultrasound first. And often we will do a diagnostic biopsy of the lesion of the lung parenchyma at the same time. If we're going to do a bronchoscopy for biopsying a peripheral lesion preoperatively, we will stage the mediastinum, and that may involve just an ultrasound examination where we will not biopsy not lymph nodes, which are less than five millimeters in long axis, but biopsy all those that are greater than that. I think that's very important. And then another important controversy is whether patients are going for non-surgical treatments, percutaneous ablation or SBRT. In those circumstances, unless the patient objects, we do stage the mediastinum in hilum. I think that's exceedingly important because they're not going to surgery. They're not getting surgical staging. And if they don't get surgical staging in those circumstances, they'll never really have pathologic staging. So I do think it's important in those non-surgical approaches to get pre-procedural, I should say, mediastinal and hyalur staging. And then lastly, I'll just add, in the era of neoadjuvant therapy, where the presence of N1 disease up front prior to surgery is going to be important for you as a medical oncologist in deciding how you're going to treat the patient if you'll treat them up front. That staging that hyalur node, as well as the mediastinal nodes, is exceedingly important to you, and we hope to be able to provide you that information on a routine basis. And this question is to the two of you, and is, what are some of these obstacles for mediastinal staging, and what patients should know? I will start with Rebecca and then go to Dan. Sure. I will be honest. I, I don't know if I see any frank obstacles besides little kind of speed bumps along the way. And some of that may be what you were referring to previously, is that it is a outpatient procedure. It is done um, under anesthesia. So you have to have someone that is willing to and able to undergo anesthesia. And then you have to have the availability and the time and the space to be able to do it. Short of that, I don't see any large obstacles to it. And I'd be interested to hear what Dan thinks. I think the obstacles are whatever the biases are of the practitioners who are seeing the patient. And this is mostly in the community and not in the academic setting. I'd be interested to see what not just and Rebecca have to say, but there are some, for example, radiation oncologists in the community who will do SBRT on a peripheral lesion after, say, doing a percutaneous biopsy under CT guidance and then doing SBRT, but without staging the mediastinum. So the barriers are potentially in the referral of the patient, not to the performance of the actual procedure. And the thought in advance, a priori, of the need for staging of the mediastinal and hyalur nodes in advance of doing a local procedure. So again, I agree with Rebecca. There are very few barriers. It's, it's a, such an easily performed, well-tolerated procedure. I guess the only other barrier is that an endobronchial ultrasound performed by a fellowship-trained interventional pulmonologist is not the same as endobronchial ultrasound performed by another practitioner, a general pulmonologist in the community, or 
even a thoracic surgeon in the community or an academic center, the number of nodes that are accessed, the documentation with uh, digital images of what the nodes look like and needle in node, the access of all of the lymph nodes that are greater than five millimeters in long axis so that you're staging all of the accessible nodes and making sure that you're accessing ipsilateral and contralateral nodes to exclude M3 disease is exceedingly important as a quality measure. And I think interventional pulmonologists do that very well, but that kind of comprehensive, minimally invasive mediastinal nodal staging is not always performed. Completely agree. And I think one of the obstacles, you know, go along those is that probably how many people are able to do the procedure. And I used to practice in the Midwest. And I think I remember, you know, we had the interventional pulmonologists at the University of Wisconsin, but there wasn't that many out there that would be able to do it. So I think, you know, in highly popular areas like New York City and DC, they may be available, but I think in other areas of the country, they're not as lucky to have the team that will be able to do this without, you know, driving 200 miles. And of course, another thing is, and this is one of the goals of these podcasts is that, you know, other people understand that the mediastinal staging by EVAS is no such a big procedure that some people may not be familiar and may see it as a, you know, like a big take when in fact the two of you are explaining that is an outpatient procedure that can be easily done if the patient can do it. (laughs) I think it's Um, important to distinguish between people who perform advanced diagnostic bronchoscopy and interventional pulmonologists. And there's a Venn diagram with significant overlap for the diagnostic and staging procedures that can be done. There are many more in people who perform advanced diagnostic bronchoscopy, which includes navigational bronchoscopy, robotic bronchoscopy, other forms of peripheral bronchoscopy, and a bronchial ultrasound, who don't perform the full panoply of procedures that interventional pulmonologists perform that Rebecca described, including thoracoscopy, rigid bronchoscopy, stent placement, et cetera. And so in terms of access in the community, Narjust, I think that we do have a need for people who are well-trained advanced diagnostic bronchoscopists to be able to do all the procedures that are needed in the community. Those don't necessarily need to be done, I'm going to be a heretic here, by fellowship-trained interventional pulmonologists. I think that the key is to make sure that you're well-trained in whatever procedure you're doing and that you're doing it in a comprehensive, safe, and ethical fashion. Thank you for explaining that. And I think, as you say, there's a gray line and we want to make sure our patients are safe. As we continue to mention the importance of pulmonology and or the work that we do every day, I want to ask the two of you about multidisciplinary tumor boards and how these tumor boards incorporate pulmonology in your institutions. So, Rebecca, how are the multidisciplinary tumor boards at Georgetown and how do you participate in, in this? Sure. So I think that they're different at every institution. I've seen them run by different folks, be it medical oncology, thoracic surgery. And Georgetown is the first program I've been at where it's actually run by pulmonology, by interventional pulmonology in particular. But uh, it practices similarly in that we have radiology, pathology, medical oncology, radiation oncology, thoracic surgery, all weighing in on complex cases. And I think it's a very collegial environment to discuss cases that will require multidisciplinary input. I would just add that the multidisciplinary tumor board is one of my favorite things of being a pulmonologist participating in the care of patients with lung cancer. It is indeed a collegial environment. It is an interactive environment. It is an, if it's well done, it's an inquisitive environment. It's an environment in which we can 
discuss not only standards of care, but we can discuss outliers of care and, and clinical trial referrals for patients. It's a way, especially now with the virtual platforms during the course of the pandemic that have changed the way that we do this to bring in people from throughout a health system and even potentially beyond who are presenting interesting cases. And it really puts each of the members on an equal platform, whether you're a pathologist reviewing the pathology from a biopsy or a surgical specimen or a radiologist or a pulmonologist, we all feel, at least I do, equally part of that team caring for the patient. And to, say, to be able to say to a patient that when you see them in the office, that you're going to present them to a group of 50 to 60 individuals who represent all aspects of lung cancer-related care and then get back to them with a consensus report, it's very reassuring to that patient that they're getting that kind of review of their case, this thorough and comprehensive review and a plan going forward so that everyone is on the same page. Yes, absolutely I, agree. I have to agree. And, you know, for the tumor boards, I get to learn something from one of my colleagues every time. And now with the incorporation of neoadjuvant therapy, like I think that multidisciplinary tumor boards are going to be essential for the terminal patients because now it's like neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. Before we knew was everything was going to be adjuvant. And, and, and it changes everything because some patients need genetic testing now at diagnosis, early stage lung cancer that before we didn't do because we didn't have auctions, right? We didn't have osimertinib after surgery. So I think with the new advancements, we need to remember that lung cancer needs to be multidisciplinary care. And data has shown that if we, we all work together, patients do better. And I do like tumor bores over soon, Dan. I agree with you because before I used to like run out of clinic, try to get somewhere. And now I attend more. And, you know, a lot of the tumor boards timings are dictated by the surgeon. So ours is a 7 a.m. on Mondays. Yeah, ours is 7 a.m. on Fridays. What I do miss over Zoom are the really good breakfasts that the surgeons would provide for us. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we no didn't one's, have no that. No one's delivering bagels and locks to me over Zoom. I wish they would. <laughs> we didn't have that. Now I'm going to protest because we don't have any food on the tumor boards. <laughs> So, Rebecca, as we continue to learn about interventional pulmonology, what other procedures interventional pulmonology can do for our patients with lung cancer? Sure. I think that Dan mentioned a fair amount of these, but I'll go into a little bit more, is that we do do a rigid bronchoscopy that really does set the interventional pulmonologist apart. And through that rigid bronchoscopy, we can do diagnostics, we can do therapeutics as well. We have other modalities for uh, tumor ablation cryotherapy, which is, you know, liquid nitrogen therapy, ablative therapies, we can do heat therapies, we can do laser therapies to ablate obstructing tumors, then we can leave stents in as well to allow the airway to maintain patency. The other thing that we do is medical thoracoscopy as well for biopsying the pleural space for undiagnosed exudative pleural effusions and for doing pleurodesis as well as placing catheters, pleurex I'm sorry, tunnel pleural catheters, I should say, take out the proprietary names for treatment of uh, recurrent uh, symptomatic malignant pleural effusions. So we have a lot of advanced tools that we can use both for diagnostic purposes, as well as for therapeutics and making people feel better. And that, that's great, Rebecca, because I always, you know, call my pulmonologist to say, hey, she's bleeding. Why can you help me out here? <laughs> yes. Um, and they always call me a solution and it always helps. So as we talk about this, we have to, as an oncologist, I have to say it, tissue is always the issue. And particularly in lung cancer, getting tissue is more difficult than for other cancers, right? Leukemias or breast cancer. 
So there's always the question, do we have enough tissue for NGS or biomarker testing? So particularly in the new era of adjuvant, adjuvant therapy. So this is to the two of you. What are your practices in order to increase the chances that there is enough tissue? Of course, is every patient independent, the tumor size and the location? Well, let me tell you my biases up front about this because there was, and maybe there still is in many oncology trials, a requirement for something called a core biopsy for samples, especially for samples to allow patients to be assessed for enrollment in clinical trials. This was never well-defined as to what a core biopsy was. I think the terminology derived from the needles used by interventional radiologists to biopsy lesions in the lung parenchyma. But as it applies to bronchoscopic samples or even pleuroscopic samples, it was always unclear as to what was a core biopsy and what would qualify patients. And the reason I, I have this as a little bit of, of a pet peeve is that as molecular techniques get better, we can get the answer from smaller and smaller pieces of tissue. And so it was never clear to me that you needed a so-called core biopsy to get the answers that you needed to enroll patient in a trial of a targeted therapy or to be able to, for example, look at pdl one expression and to be able to enroll a patient in a clinical trial of a novel immunotherapeutic. So I think that we've shown, and there have been many papers in our literature as well as in other literature, that these the important questions that you as a medical oncologist in lung cancer need to answer can be obtained from small specimens that we obtain bronchoscopically through robotic bronchoscopy, through endobronchial ultrasound-guided needle aspiration. And so I think that designing trials, you have to rethink how what the terminology is for the material that's needed. Again, the biggest concerns from my perspective sometimes are accessing lesions in the lung parenchyma that may not have a bronchus leading directly to them that can be challenging. And then lesions that have a lot of necrosis we may be very successful at accessing those lesions with endobronchial ultrasound or other technologies, but we get a lot of necrotic debris because there isn't a lot of viable tumor. And that's something that we can't always control when we're biopsying one lesion or, or lymph node. Rebecca? Yes. Thank you no, so it, much, Adam, yeah. for this. And I promise I would never ask for a core biopsy. No, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I have done it before. <laughs> Oh, I completely agree. I was just lamenting about that recently, that this the term of the core biopsy. And the only thing I'll add is that we do have different tools that we use, specifically, I'm thinking in robotic bronchoscopy with biopsying lesions in the periphery. So we do combine different tools to be able to do it, be it needle, be it forceps, be it brushes, really trying to get you guys the most amount of tissue that we can, but agreed that that core biopsy term can be a little bit frustrating at times. Thank you both. And, you know, thank you for always getting us the tissue. I think sometimes we forget how hard sometimes to biopsy these tumors. And I prepare my patients. It's like the pulmonologist is trying to get a target that moves every other second. So, you know, I try to prepare them because, you know, it's like, right, compared to the breast, the lung is always moving. <laughs> so like you can hold it and put a needle in it, right? So as we're coming almost to the end of the podcast, you know, first, I want to thank the two of you because I bet that you have worked so hard during the COVID-19 pandemic being involved in pulmonary medicine. So I'm going to start with Dan because your site was impacted by the pandemic relatively early. You know, how did this change how you practice interventional pulmonology? Well, it changed literally everything that we were doing because, number one, we had to mobilize everyone with critical care training to take care of the critically ill patients in our hospital. We went from one intensive care unit spanning approximately 30 to 32 patients to at one time 
approximately in one of our five hospitals, 200 patients intubated with COVID-19 ARDS alone. And so we had about 12 or 13 pop-up ICUs, all of which had to be staffed by critically care trained people, including our interventional pulmonologists. We also had a program for early percutaneous tracheostomy to try to liberate patients from mechanical ventilation or minimize the amount of support that they needed and allow them to start to rehab. And so our thoracic surgeons and our interventional pulmonologists went around and performed literally hundreds of percutaneous tracheostomies on the patients at all of our institutions. And so what happened? What happened was the lung cancer staging and screening was deferred, unfortunately. In many cases, we were for patients who looked like they had a resectable lung cancer that we otherwise would have done a biopsy and mediastinal staging. Some of those patients went directly to surgery at that time, Narjust, and they got staging at the time of surgery and got adjuvant therapy if appropriate at that time. I think we we tried to make do with the best, best course of action for the best care for patients that we had and to obviate the procedures that we felt were not 100% needed at that time when we needed to deploy our faculty and our fellows and many other places around the hospital. We rapidly, by June of 2020, for example, after that first surge, resumed normal activities in terms of diagnosis and staging. But I think that we did the best we could for our lung cancer patients during that very difficult time here in New York City. Thank you, Dan. I can't imagine how many sleepless nights you have during that time. Rebecca, in Washington, D.C., what impact did the pandemic have on procedures and training for our fellows? Yeah, we were fortunate to be spared a little bit early in the pandemic. We certainly did not experience the New York City level of COVID. We did have to expand our ICUs and we broke apart our faculty into those that primarily did pulmonary and those that did critical care. So we had to expand our ICU services and the critical care focused physicians did that, allowing for the pulmonary physicians to manage some of the outpatient folks. So from an interventional pulmonary standpoint, we were still doing lung cancer staging and diagnosis, anything that was urgent to emergent, especially for airway obstruction cases. And we paused some of our elective cases, be that bronchial thermoplasty for asthma or lung volume reduction, bronchoscopic lung volume reduction. So anything that could be paused, we did. I think from a training perspective, I think that we don't have a formal dedicated interventional pulmonary fellow. So I don't think that the they were limited in their training capabilities and they are general pulmonary fellows were deployed into the ICUs and, and really experienced the the critical care aspects of the pandemic. Thank you, Rebecca. And then to our trainees that are listening, the role of pulmonology can be multidisciplinary and there are many things that pulmonologists can get involved in. For example, I know you're involved in drug development and clinical trials. What advice do you have for someone interested in interventional pulmonology and where do you think the field is going? Well, I know where the field is going, and the field is going to directive therapeutics. So the ability to access lymph nodes, cancers in the lung parenchyma, and cancers in the pleural space is great for diagnosis and palliation, but also means that we have unique access to microenvironments. The lymph node microenvironment containing tumor, the primary tumor microenvironment, and the pleural space. And so I think that what we're going to do together with our colleagues in medical oncology is think about how we can leverage that access for delivery of local therapeutics, which can synergize with systemic therapeutics. And these therapeutics may be thermal, so the ability to thermally ablate a peripheral lesion after you've made a, a diagnosis of cancer and stage the mediastinum. 
the ability to deliver local immunotherapeutics to enhance the local and systemic immune responses that can synergize with immune checkpoint inhibitors, but to deliver chemotherapeutics that may work locally to ablate, for example, oligometastatic disease. So I think these are all on the horizon. There are clinical trials in all of these areas that are either ongoing or in development. And I suspect that we'll be working even more closely with you on these therapeutic trials, these multimodality therapeutic trials going forward in the future. And that's what really excites me about the future of this field. Dan, and I think, you know, as we're developing cell therapy for lung cancer, we're going to continue working with pulmonologists because a lot of the cell therapy, particularly the engineer cells, they're being delivered in the plural space or they're being delivered intra-tumor. And that's why we need our, you know, very skilled interventional radiologists to deliver these fancy cells now. I couldn't agree uh, more. Yeah, it's, it's so exciting. Like I, we had a podcast about cellular therapy and, you know, it, sometimes it feels like we're talking about 2050, but it's happening right now. I know we're running out of time, but before we go, I know our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about your background. So, Rebecca, can you tell us about why you chose the field of interventional pulmonology? Sure. You know, I think I kind of got into pulmonary and critical care medicine for a similar reason that most people do is that we like the ICU, we like the fast pace of it, we like the procedural aspects of it. And you go into a pulmonary critical care training program and you are exposed to the hidden gem of pulmonary. And I think that interventional pulmonary kind of combined the two for me. It allowed the interesting side of pulmonary, the pathology, the diagnosis with some of the procedural aspects that I liked in the ICU. So I think it was a good combination of the two, but also allowed for the longitudinal care of patients moving forward, which sometimes you kind of miss in, in the ICU environment. So it was a interventional pulmonary ended up being a, a good blend of all the, the subspecialties together for me. I have to tell this story to you and Dan. So my parents both are surgeons and my grandpa too. So I remember telling my father I was going to do internal medicine and he was like, no happy. And then he told me, but at least you're going to be one of those internal medicine people, the cool ones that do procedures like pulmonology or GI. <laughs> like, I'm serious. This is a conversation in the dinner table. My father is disappointed. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be like the cool guys of pulmonology and GI. I'm going to do medical oncology. And then his face was even more disappointed after that. <laughs> So my father had a hope that even if I did medicine, I would be a pulmonologist. So Dan, you're the director of pulmonary oncology at NYU. What drove you to this field? So thank you for the question. When I was training, first in medical school, I was a medical student at Cornell and doing research in melanoma at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I thought I was going to be a, a medical oncologist. And then like Rebecca, during residency, I became completely enamored with the ICU, and that became even more confused about what I wanted to do with my life. And then was exposed to some of the earliest pioneers of the field of interventional pulmonology before it even had a name. And suddenly I realized that I could put all these cool things together. Your father and grandfather would have been very happy with me that you could put together your interest in oncology and your interest in critical care and with procedures all in one career, although we didn't have a name for it back then in the early to mid-90s when I was starting. And so that's really what drew it to me is that I could put together all these elements of a career that didn't yet have a title or a name or a field or a board examination, but I could do these things in my career. 
So for me, it's been incredibly exciting to be in one of these cutting edge, newly developed fields and to be you know, one of the people who's helped to shape the field that Rebecca's going to take and bring to the next level in her career going forward. Thank you for sharing that. And you know what the two of you mentioned is the value of training. Like when you start caring for patients, when you start doing your rotation in internal medicine, that's when you really find, you know, where your heart is at. And I have to say that my heart wasn't at the ACU. <laughs> it was a little bit far away from that. So thank you so much to the two of you for a great discussion. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Rebecca, it has been great to have you. It's wonderful to see a woman also in the field of interventional pulmonology. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted, the official ISLC podcast. I hope that you will tune in regularly. We release episodes the first and third Tuesday of every month and follow us on Twitter and feel free to comment to any of the episodes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 